This is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Today's guest, Miha Baldwin, is a serial entrepreneur, longtime founder. He started his first company at the age of nine. Uh, Most recently, he spent time at Amazon where he led a team dedicated to helping startups grow their businesses by connecting them with large enterprises and business units within Amazon. Um, He's an experienced startup investor. He's a trusted advisor to many startups. He's a mentor at 500 Startups, Techstars, and other accelerators where he helps early stage companies with fundraising, business development, product development, marketing, and growth, among other things. Uh, He's a venture advisor at Crunch Fund, and he is executive director at Create33, which is this massive 22,000 square foot innovation center focused on the Pacific Northwestern startup ecosystem. Directly relevant to this podcast and the topic of stigma, Miha has experienced recovery from his own personal struggles over the years. He has a lot of wisdom and experience living in the recovery community and helping others do the same. Um, you can connect with Miha on Twitter. It's at M-I-C-A-H, and you can read more about his background and find a link to all of his socials on his About Me page, which I will link in the show notes. I'm really excited about this conversation. Miha, thank you for coming on. Of course. You missed the fact that I'm also a dog owner who, uh, a loud dog owner. So I apologize for any barking that might occur. It's not me. It's my dog, Taylor. Oh, okay, good. I was, I was wondering, but I'm glad we got, got that straight. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad for Taylor to be joining us as well. So you've kind of touched like every corner of the startup ecosystem, founder, investor, advisor, partner. You, can you tell me a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. I, you know, I, it's so funny. Like I always talk about the fact that um, I became a farmer because I grew up on the farm. I grew up in San Jose, California, sort of the heart of Silicon Valley at a time where things were accelerating very quickly. My father worked at Stanford um, University, and we always talk about at one point, uh, for reference, he was the he was asked to be the fourth employee at Cisco <laughs> and turn them down uh, because Cisco was being sued by Stanford at the time. Uh, around patent infringement. So you're talking about very early on in the internet. And that was my life, right? Everything I, I, you know, he was at the homebrew club with uh, the two Steves showing off the first Apple. Um, And so I grew up on the farm of entrepreneurship. And so growing up, whenever I wanted something, my parents basically said, go figure it out. And so I did. And so I started my first business when I was nine which was, you know, getting the kids in the neighborhood together so that I owned all the lawn mowing. The lawn mowing business was mine. I became a mogul <laughs> uh, of lawn mowing and, and landscaping at the age of nine. Um, and then just continued to do that and did that through uh, 2014 with my last company graphically. And then decided that I wanted to work at a big company because I never had before. And so uh, joined Amazon where I was there for three and a half years before I left to do uh, Create 33, which to me is really a, a labor of love of providing back all of the things that I've learned and all the access and all the the um, resources that, that I've needed as a young entrepreneur, providing it to all the entrepreneurs in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so it's been, it's been a fun journey. 
Wow, that sounds really interesting. I, I'm I'm envious. You know, I, I just found my way to the Bay Area recently uh, working in venture. So I'm kind of envious of you having grown up around all that's transpired there. That's that's really, really awesome. Yeah, well, you know, grass is greener, as they say. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm envious yeah. of, you know, a million other people doing a million other things that I wish I had spent more time doing. You know, like, like I always say that I would have been much richer if I just started at Google in 1998. And just kept my mouth shut and worked hard. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, things things are as they are. So, yeah, that's that's a great background. And, and you know, we we spend a lot of time here talking about mental health and addiction. And I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, when you I like to ask everybody when you think of just those two words like mental health, you know, what what comes to mind for you? Uh, so the first word that comes to mind is the word stability, which is something that I've been using a lot lately. I'll tell you a little bit about my mental health background or my own battles with mental health and then kind of generally where I look at it. So I have bipolar two, anxiety and bipolar depression are the three things that I deal with, uh, all medicated. And I am in a stable state now. Growing up, nobody ever really knew what mental health was. I was just the crazy kid that was getting sad all the time. And, uh, or like, you know, the little genius kid who, you know, Energizer Bunny and nobody ever knew what to do with me. And I never knew what to do with me. And I actually didn't get diagnosed uh, as bipolar until I was in my thirties. So I've built an entire life of defense mechanisms around mental health. And it's been an amazing journey over the past time to learn what life is like to be stable. So mental health to me is really about stability. It's not, it's not about the, the difference between happy and sad. I feel like happy is one of those things that people say that there's a a list of to-dos. And if you do these seven things, you will always be happy. And I sit there and go, well, my brain is broken. So I know if I did those seven things, I still might not be happy. And so I I tend to use the word stable when I think of mental health. I like that. Uh, That's interesting. You know, I I can relate to that because I feel like I I lived the first 38 years of my life unstable and I didn't really understand why. And then when I found out that I was type one bipolar and started taking meds, I realized, wow, th- is this what kind of directionally normal feels like to be yeah. balanced and stable? <laughs> this is cool. I have that conversation with my therapist all the time. I'm like, what is, what is normal? She's like, there is no normal. I'm like, no, no, no. You understand what I mean. Like, yeah. like how, do, how do regular people like feel? Like she was like, I think you're anxious. And I'm like, what does that feel like? I don't understand what anxiety feels like. And she's like, well, it feels like this. And I'm like, I feel like that all the time. Like, isn't that how normal people feel? And she's like, no. So yeah, I, I totally get it. When I, when I was diagnosed as bipolar, I remember walking out of the psychiatrist, psychologist, I always forget what they're called, uh, office. And I called my mom and I cried. And I was like, this is the first time in my life somebody actually knows what's wrong with me. And, and I've always sort of kept that feeling alive as I've progressed down this journey. That's interesting because I, I remember when I learned that I was bipolar officially, I felt a sense of relief, like like yeah. a lot of the stories, a lot of the stuff that had happened, a lot of the stuff that I'd done that I regretted made sense in a way. And it just, I don't know, it was, uh, I felt some sort of relief in a way. Totally relate. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always tell people that every day from the age of 12, I thought about suicide, right? Like that was just a natural course of business. It wasn't that I was suicidal. It was just that I thought about it all the time. And the thought wasn't, oh, my life would be so much better 
if I was dead, right? Like the world would be better. Like a lot of people go down that thought pattern. It was really just the fact of like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, why do I have to live this way? And then once I got stable, those feelings have sort of dissipated because I understood that just like a broken leg, there's chemicals in my brain that just don't work right. And being stable is a completely, you know, epiphany of a life that I just never knew existed. And now my only concern, only comments are like, I wish I had figured this out 20 years ago, but you know, life is as life is. Yeah. I heard someone recently explain to me that, you know, those of us that grew up with this and didn't figure it out till later in life, we, we grew up around this false narrative that it tried to explain what our behavior uh, and what our, our mindset meant, uh, what it said about us. And that false narrative led us to these places of you know coping with addiction and coping with other things and you know if we had just been educated earlier on we might have gone down a totally different path and you know so that's kind of the purpose of this podcast is just to get people talking about it for the sake of education and for the sake of stigma reduction you know in the hopes that the, whatever 12 year olds out there today like I was wondering what's wrong with them you know they they end up going hmm there's a way for me to figure this out there's a way for me to get help and, and they do it as opposed to waiting another 20 years to do it. Yeah, totally. And, you know, like I talk about it with my mom a lot and I'm, and I, and my mom's like, I wish I knew. I'm like, you know, it's, that's a very valid point, right? Like mental health was not something talked about when we were right. kids. It was not, it was a thing that you kept quiet. Like if I had gotten in a car accident and had, and was paraplegic, right, there would be a bunch of conversation about ways to make my life better. But the fact that mental health is hidden and you don't see it in anyone other than through their behavior, it makes it a really tough conversation to have with anyone. And so I don't, I don't fault my parents for not knowing. I don't fault myself for not knowing. It's just one of those things that I wish it was different. And I'm really excited that you're doing this because I, I imagine there are many people that are going to listen to this and think to themselves, gosh, that really feels like me. Maybe I should go get this checked out and maybe they too can live a stable Yeah. And kind of last thing about bipolar, I, I met with um, a, f- a friend of mine who used to be in the startup community in SF la- this week uh, on Monday afternoon, and and he has been taking time away because of of some some mental health issues. And and, and I kind of explained to him that I've found hope around my illness, and I found hope around you know dealing with the consequences from my illness, and and just the look on his face when he realized there was hope. You know, it was like I, yeah. people just don't know it. And, and so I, I, I want to spread some hope. That's sort of the goal here. Great. I, um, a friend of mine recommended a book recently that I've been reading and highlighting like crazy. And in there is a line that's saying that there's pairs, though the hope and fear are paired mm. together, right? So the opposite of hope is fear. The opposite of fear is hope. And I just know that I've lived my life so long in fear until I became stable. And now my life is all full of hope. And that difference is phenomenal. And, and, the story you just told me makes my my throat clench a little because I realized that, you know, that was the major difference for me was this this move from being afraid of living into being hopeful for what life might be able to bring. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that happened to me is I started coping with my mental illness uh, with addiction and I spent 20 years living in some pretty destructive and addictive uh, cycles. And I was wondering, you know, what what's your experience been like uh, with that? So I think my first drug was food, right? I'm not a, I'm not a little <laughs> kid. And so, or, or a small, small man. 
I, uh, I think initially it was food and, and, and the interesting thing with food is, well, I guess there's two things is I've always been told I had an addictive personality. I, I don't do things halfway, right? I'm in love or not in love. I, I hate or don't hate. I, uh, eat or don't eat. I do drugs or don't do drugs. Like everything is very binary, which has been a major learning point for me is to figure out what moderation actually means. And so if I exercise, I exercise like crazy. And so for me, I think my very first drug was food and I ate tons uh, and became a big kid. And it was great because everybody left me alone. Like I didn't have to feel because I was just the funny fat kid. And, and I think that that was a great defense mechanism for me for a long time. As I got older, alcohol and, you know, and other things up till my, when I became what I considered to be a drug addict, cocaine and, and anything that, anything that you could put in my hand, I would put in my mouth that that time period, which was a good solid, I don't know, 10 years, I guess, off and on was brutal. And it destroyed a lot of, a lot of my life, friendships and businesses and other things. And, and I basically bottomed out so hard that I decided that I was either going to, going back to what I had talked about, thinking about suicide every day to actually do it, like stop being a punk about it and do it or get sober. And uh, one day I decided it was get sober was my choice. And so in my binary way, I sat down and said, that's it. Took all the drugs I had in the house, put them in a box, gave them away and sat in my house for a year trying to figure out how to not be a drug addict. And then struggled with that over the last 13 years, sort of falling in and out. Now, I never have gone back to the hard drugs, but like other, other substances, alcohol, weed, things like that. Uh, slipped in and out of. And then for the ba- last about year, I've gotten serious about it again and went to AA and have really followed through the path of, you know, what they call living live spiritual life and sort of readjusting my viewpoint on my ability to manage my addiction and sort of being willing to, to say, I can't do it alone. Um, and that's been a, a formative experience for me over the last year or so. Yeah. What? How would you describe the difference between the, you know the time when you sort of white knuckled it, you went alone, uh, and the time you spent in a program like AA? You know, what's sort of the the difference? How how is why is the program working uh, so much better for you? It's a good question. I do think part of it is when you white knuckle it, you live in the fear of failing, right? Like. Like I used to always say, like, I can't do drugs again because if I do, I will die, right? Like it was, it was, there was no middle ground of me being able to manage it. I knew I could never manage it. And so my life was centered around the fact of not doing things, like refusing things, skipping things, not going out. I I built up a really bad social anxiety where I basically was a hermit, didn't want to leave my house, didn't develop any relationships, right? Like, like it was, I was literally... Rapunzel in a tower with the shirt, with, you know, the shaved head. Like I was, I was making sure that there was no way that anyone could touch me and that I couldn't touch anybody else. And then going into AA, the difference there was first, everyone's super nice. Like when the first time I went to AA was like in, I don't know, early 2000s when I got a DUI and the court told me I had to go. And I was like, man, this is so fake. Like everybody here is all happy and they're like holding hands and praying and. <laughs> Like, this has got to be a bunch of bullshit. And, uh, and I'm like, I'll do my five days and then I'm out of here. I'll never go again. But I realized that people are genuine and they actually care about each other. Um, and, and I would get phone calls from people if I missed a meeting. Or I would get random text messages just being like, hey, I want to check in on you. 
I got a sponsor who was, you know, like me, tattooed and, you know, and a bit older and like, and we just get in a business owner and we just get along really well. And we have these really deep conversations about life. I don't know. It's like the first time I walked into a meeting, I looked around and I saw all these different men and women of all different ages, sizes, and types, some tattooed, some dressed nicely, some dressed badly, some, you know, just all different types. And they all were just pure love. And I know that sounds so woo woo, but like, it was just, it was just an amazing experience. It was like my people. Like I had finally found people that are like me, even if they didn't look like me. And it was a very different world to live in than when I was doing it by myself, because the only way I could do it by myself was to cut everything out and be just be me by myself. Mm. Um, and I think that sense of belonging was probably the biggest wake up call for me. I still haven't figured out how to make it work quite right. Like you and I have had this conversation, like I don't quite understand the meetings as well as I should. And I probably don't use my sponsor the way that I should. But that sense of belonging is an important thing for me as I imagine it is for many people. Yeah. I love the sense of vulnerability, you know, seeing other humans sit in a room together and be vulnerable with each other. It yeah. sets a example for me and it makes me want what they have. And so I want yeah. to try to be like that. And then it turns out, I mean, my, my experience has been, it turns out in order to get there, you have to deal with a lot of stuff. Um, you have to, have to work through a process and, and it's, it's really powerful. I'm, I'm grateful for AA. You know, I go to a, a handful of 12 step meetings and I, I really, really, AA is the one that kind of got me started and I'm, I'm grateful. And I, like one of the things you said, you mentioned spirituality early on and like uh, spirituality is the thing that kept me out of AA for a while. I was terrified of how many times the, this 12 step process mentions a higher power. And you know, it took me a little while to figure that out. You know, it just wasn't straightforward for me. I was wondering kind of what your experience was like with the spiritual component of AA. Yeah, so I'm I'm ethnically Jewish. Like I'm not a very religious person. I've long believed in a higher power or some sort of godlike being, right? How, whatever how it's defined, um, I've never been able to define it. But I do believe there's some energy that moves the world in a certain way. And I was very turned off by the the mentions of God in AA. You know, and again, I get it. It was written in 1939. And, you know, that was sort of the thing, but I was very turned off by it early on. And, and that's been my biggest struggle is you listen to these people talking about giving their lives over to their higher power. And I just sit back and I go, fuck, does that mean? Right. Like, do you sit there every morning and be like, okay, today, God, I really would like you to make me breakfast. Like, how does that work? You know, like, like I've lived my whole life, me, like I've done it. Like, this isn't something that other, anyone else has done for me. And I, and I'll tell you about two weeks ago. I was having, maybe even last weekend, I was having this thought and it was just running through my head. And I'm like, you know, I've always done this for myself. Like, what does AA mean to me? Like, why do I need to go to meetings? Why do I need a sponsor? Like, I've been doing just fine. I don't really need, I don't need any extra. And I was like, you know, what is, what is giving yourself up to God really mean? And so I sat down and I said, you know what? I've done this by myself for so long, but I haven't done it well. Like I've struggled, like I've slipped, like I still, I was by myself. I was miserable. I was sort of alive, but I wasn't alive because I was but meant to be alive. I was alive as a battle to not die, mm. right? Like, like it's a different feeling that I had. And I was like, what would happen if I sat down and said, you know what? All I'm going to do is say to myself, Miha, doing this by yourself hasn't worked. What if you let other people just be helpful? What if your higher power isn't a God, but it's all the people that are around you? 
Like what if, what if higher power is the collective energy of people that actually care? And then take a moment and make a list of those people that actually care for you. And that list is much longer than just you. That list is pretty long. And so maybe it's just that, like maybe it's just the energy that I get when I say hello to a friend in the morning, when I say goodbye to a friend in the evening, when I go out to lunch with a friend, when somebody from AA shoots me a text message or whatever, right? Like maybe it's that, like each one of those is a small piece of this spirit, this higher power. And if I do that and I just give myself up to that, saying that I'm willing to ask for help and I'm willing to be vulnerable and I'm willing to allow others into my life, maybe that's what that means. And maybe that's what I should be doing. And so that's what I've been focusing on over the last week or so as as my definition of what spirituality or higher power is. Mm, That's great. That's really great. I think that'll help some people to hear that. One of the topics that we talk about a lot here is stigma, obviously, the title of the podcast. I was kind of curious if you have any thoughts on how stigma might have impacted your journey with mental health and addiction over the years. Yeah, so I was, I've always been very quiet about it, uh, realized that, you know, in the venture capital space and the entrepreneurial space, the, the startup world, there is a very defined, this is the perfect X, right? Tends to be a white male who looks like he went to Harvard or Stanford, right? Who has probably rich family, like make a list. That list of none of it is me, except for the male part. Like I am a guy. And so, but everything else wasn't me. And I was like, gosh, I'm already battling against everything else, right? Like I'm, I went to good school, but I didn't go to Stanford. I'm pretty smart, but I don't have this, you know, rich back history. Everything I have is I'm fighting against it. Again, I have to, I'm going to have to get this figured out on my own. Do I really want to add the stigma of mental health and add the stigma of drug abuse into my story? Because it becomes an easy way for people to just say, no, I'm not interested in having you as a part of our team. And then I, as time passed and I'm tattooed, right? I have, I have visible tattoos on my arms and on my hand. Um, and I'm like, well, that's another, you know, knock against me. So not only am I don't look like the perfect founder or VC, I don't carry the part. I don't speak well. I swear a lot. I have tattoos all over the place. And then on top of that, you're fucking crazy and you're a drug addict. <laughs> like, gosh, like I would have no chance to do anything. So for a very long time, I was relatively quiet about it or People one-on-one knew, but I didn't speak about it publicly. Or I would use euphemisms like, oh, in the days when I partied, right? Or, you know, or gosh, you know, I've been sad a little bit today. I'm kind of depressed. Like I would talk around it constantly. Mm. And then I got to a point where I realized that being me mattered more than anything else. And that all of that was a piece of who I was. And it wasn't my fault that somebody wasn't going to accept me. Right at the end of the day, it was their fault that they didn't have the intelligence, compassion, whatever you want to call it, to accept me for who I was um, and for how I look and how I dress and how I talk and all of the baggage that I bring to the table. And that that if their belief was that I wasn't good enough because of something that happened in the past that turned me into who I was today and that who I was today wasn't good enough to be part of whatever it is that they wanted to be. Well, then they could kiss my ass. <laughs> and and that was that was the shift for me. It's not an easy shift, right? Like I'm lucky in the situation that I'm in because I have some success and I have some some track record to show that I can do things. So it's it's not that I'm an unknown quantity. Um, it'd be different if I was 22. But at the same time, I just realized that like 
it was holding me back because I was un, I was afraid going back to the concept of fear to even reach out to certain people, be it a friendship, a love interest, a work situation. Like I was, I was saying no for them before they could say no to me as a way to protect myself. And I decided that that was just wrong. Like I had to make them say no and I had to have them own their no. So if you're going to say no to me, you're going to say no to me because it is very clear that you've got a problem with the fact of the way my brain works or my history or the way I look or the way I talk, but you will never have a question about the work that I do, the output that I create, the success that I've generated, the help I provided others. Like that'll never be a question. So you will 100% be making a decision based upon true bigotry. And if that's true, then you can go fuck yourself. Right on. And, and that, that shift happened for me about 10 years ago. Yeah. I think your your story sounds so much like mine. It's really helpful. It's honestly helpful to me to hear it. So thank you for sharing it. And, you know, this stigma, I mean, how do we address it? I mean, my, my idea on addressing it right now is just to get as many people talking about it as possible. And it's not an original idea. I got that idea because I saw celebrities talking about it. And I thought, now let's just get a bunch of people on a podcast to share their stories. And, and maybe eventually it'll land on the ears of someone who decides to ask for help instead of, you know, do something that, you know, bad, uh, unhealthy for themselves. So how do you think about addressing that stigma that, that made you younger, you afraid to reach out? So maybe a, a younger, maybe the 12 year old today who needs help actually does reach out. I think step one is I personally have to be accepting and compassionate. All that bigotry lives in all of us. Um, we all make stereotypes. We all make decisions based upon the way things look, feel, taste right here. Um, and so step one is I have to be compassionate. I have to be accepting and I have to be willing to listen to a whole story and understand a whole person and accept them for who they are as an individual. If I can do that, which I struggle with every day, and I think we, a lot of us struggle with every day, then that's step one. Step two then is to talk about it as if it is just what it is, right? It is a medical condition. My brain works differently than other people's brains. That's okay. There are people who have legs work differently than other people's legs, and that's okay. And if we have that conversation openly and honestly and vulnerably, then it just becomes a conversation. It's not something that is carries a bunch of emotion and feeling and, you know, junk along with it. So I think what you're doing is fantastic, right? Just having the conversation is important. The second part is, is education. People just need to learn. Like there just needs to be more opportunity for people to understand what it means to live in a mental health, you know, an unstable mental health state, what it means to live in a stable mental health state, what you can see, what you can do, how you can be helpful, right? Like the hardest thing for me is when, when I'm in a, in a depressed state that people are reaching out to help me and there's nothing they can do. The only thing that helps is time. I just have to wait for it to pass. And having people understand how to actually act either in a mental health crisis or just when you're mentally unstable or you're in a depressed state is really paramount. And so I think education becomes really important. We learn first aid in school. We should learn mental health first aid, right? We should understand that when little Jane is unhappy, it might just be that she's not unhappy. It might be what her brain is making her feel and that we should understand what all that means. So I think education is really important. And then thirdly, I think success. The more people we have that are successful, 
while dealing with mental health instability um, or stability or recovery or whatever things that are non-normal, the more that they're successful and they're open about the fact that their success was in spite of or because of their experiences, the more likely people will model their behavior and understand it to be just normal, just part of the way the life works, right? I hope more people go to therapy. I wish everybody had a therapist. I hope more people get executive coaches that are trying to build companies. I think everyone should have a coach. I think everyone should understand, and I think this is probably the most important piece of it all, everybody should understand that asking for help is not weakness, it's actually strength. And if you can understand that dynamic, asking for help is strength, it's not weakness, then everything moves in the direction it goes should go. That's that's solid. I can't add anything to that. That's that's great advice. I hope that message continues to permeate and it gets told and people hear it and people take heed to it. And that's that's really great. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. This conversation's been great. I mean, it's been helpful for me. And I hope that it will be helpful for the people that listen to it. And I'm really grateful that you responded to some random stranger on the internet who reached out and said, hey, and that we've had a chance to talk a little bit and that you've, you've come on this podcast and that you, I know you're plugged in and supportive of the mental health startup ecosystem. And I can't wait to talk with you, you know, offline more about that. But I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on here and doing this. So thank you very much. You're more than welcome. And, and um, I'm happy you reached out. I think, I think we have found a friendship that'll last for a while. Uh, and, and clearly this talk was good because Taylor didn't bark at all. So it's, it's a Taylor approved podcast. Taylor must be listening and maybe Taylor's tweeting right now. Hopefully <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I'll end up with a, a large dog following and I'm, I, I'd be cool with a huge dog following. Like that would be <laughs> super dope and I'm down. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. That's it for this episode of Stigma. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, we would greatly appreciate a subscribe or a like in your podcast platform of choice. You can connect with us on Twitter at StigmaCast, and uh, you know you can find us on our website at StigmaPodcast.com. Please let us know your thoughts on the episode. Thanks.